Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Along with my co-host Eric Raskin, I am Kieran Mulvaney. Eric, I'm afraid I have to confront you with something here. Um, I understand you may have been engaging in some questionable parenting activities this past week. Care to elucidate, sir? <laughs> um, sure, uh, but uh, but before I explain, uh, I'll just preface by refuting your premise to an extent here. That this was actually great parenting, parenting that others should aspire to, frankly. Uh, okay. But here it is. Uh, young Master Eli turned 14 a few days ago, and I had declared several years ago that 14 seemed a reasonable age for him to start watching certain great TV shows and movies. Uh, one of them was Breaking Bad, which uh, we jumped the gun and started that shortly after he turned 13. Uh, he hasn't started cooking meth yet, so I, I think that turned out okay. Um, the other two uh, were to watch all the great mob movies, Godfather, Godfather 2, and Goodfellas specifically, and to watch the Quentin Tarantino filmography in order. So ah. we started the latter this Saturday night and watched Reservoir Dogs. Um, Eli very much liked it. Uh, he criticized a bit of the acting, specifically Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel in the car near the very beginning of the movie. Um, and for what it's worth watching it this time around, it occurred to me that Tim Roth does a rather spotty job throughout the movie of covering up his British accent. Um, <laughs> but uh, but all in all, Eli thought it was quite good. Uh, and my feeling seeing it now was that it both feels a little dated and yet totally holds up. Uh, like the, the bouncing around in time, which will become a, a Tarantino signature, was yeah. quite brilliantly executed and, and certainly novel at the time. Uh, there are questions of appropriateness showing it to a 14-year-old, but uh, look, they pan away as the ear gets sliced off. It's as tasteful an ear-severing as you'll ever not quite see. Um, but that said, there are about five or six uses of the N-word. Uh, that's not great. Makes me cringe a bit now. But uh, but on that front, I suppose Reservoir Dogs is a good warm-up for Django Unchained. Um, but, uh, you know, Eli and I will certainly have a talk before that one about the importance of him never, ever, under any circumstances, saying that word. But uh, but anyway, uh, up up next, probably soon. Pulp Fiction, then. That's right. That's next. Uh, nothing inappropriate in there, right? No, no gimps no. to speak of that I can recall? No heads getting blown off. No, <laughs> certainly no N words. <laughs> I forget if it's more if it's more or fewer than uh, than in Reservoir Dogs, but uh, yeah, I wonder uh, if Tarantino. There's like in Django, it's kind of hard to do the movie and have it be accurate without some of the racist characters using that word. Um, but in some of these, like in Reservoir Dogs, if he had it to redo now, I wonder if he would do it without any use of the N word. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, it's interesting that I haven't watched Birds of Our Dogs for a long time. Um, but it's interesting what you said about it perhaps being dated, uh, yet also ha sort of standing up. And also what Eli said about the acting. I kind of think that some of his early efforts, there was so much on the stylistic element of, of it uh, and the musical element and, and it being just a very different kind of thing, that some of the acting was almost almost intentionally not quite right for some of the earlier movies. And I feel like maybe in some of the latter movies, 
it, they became, for want of a better word, a bit more conventionally acted. Um, it would be kind of interesting to go back because I think that same criticism will hold up for parts of Pulp Fiction too. Probably. So I, I think that's an interest. I think that's an interesting observation by fourteen-year-old Eli. <laughs> well, I, I guess I'll say this: uh, that uh, Tarantino put himself in a lot of his movies, including Reservoir Dogs. So obviously, having elite-level acting is not his top priority. Right. Although, out of context, the statement, my 14-year-old criticized the acting of Tim Roth and Harvey Keitel. It's like, <laughs> oh, dude. It also just harkens back to the things being shot on film era, and especially in Reservoir Dogs' case, he didn't have, like, an unlimited mega budget. So probably right. they got a few takes on things, and, and that was it. And uh, right. whereas nowadays, you can certainly shoot, shoot, shoot over and over until you get the perfect acting performance. But that's oh, yeah. that's part of what feels just like a little date. There's like, it's, you know, it's film, which is awesome. It right. doesn't quite look like today's movies. Interesting. And maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah yeah maybe it maybe it is exactly i mean you know in those fantastic days when movies were just cobbled together and not edited by hacks like fred raskin <laughs> right exactly this was the pre-fred raskin quentin tarantino era so uh yeah. clearly his best work was ahead of him what was fred's first one by the way with quentin tarantino so he was an assistant editor on the kill bill movies and then took over as uh his uh lead editor starting with django so just it's been oh. the last three that Fred has been his uh, his head editor. Do our listeners know this? I know that you and I have conversed about it a lot. Do, does everybody know what we're talking about? Have we actually discussed this on the podcast? I can't remember. I can't either. And even if we had, of course, uh, people are not necessarily completists. So, yes, if you haven't quite pieced it together uh, yet, my older brother, Fred, is a Hollywood film editor. And his primary things that he does are he is Tarantino's editor. And uh, he edits uh, most of the stuff that James Gunn does. So the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, the Suicide Squad, etc. So, you know, he probably, probably, he's probably as poor as you. <laughs> well, listen, my industry is not on strike right now. So there's that. <laughs> there is that. Exactly. Yes. Right. Far from being at, on strike, in fact, he says, gearing up for one of his patented segues. Well done. <laughs> Right. The industry is, in fact, gearing itself up for another one of those big fight weekends. Yes, it is Canelo Charlo fight week. And this is the first of three podcasts we plan to give you this week. And it is a loaded one. Uh, we welcome our good friend and Showtime colleague Brian Custer to offer up all his insights on the Canelo versus Charlo card, as well as to share his personal story and spread the word about prostate cancer awareness. You will not want to miss that interview. Also, Eric and I will discuss Zhang Zhilai's splattering of Joe Joyce. Eric will play the fight game, and he will give me my next top five challenge. But let's start with the aforementioned event that the whole boxing world, and even much of the mainstream sports world, is focused on this week. Let's preview Canelo Alvarez versus Jamel Charlo this Saturday from T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas, live on Showtime Pay-Per-View at 8 p.m. Eastern. Thank you, Stephen. 5 p.m. Pacific. <laughs> yeah, and you mentioned this is the first of three podcasts this week. We'll also have a Friday evening Money Punch pod and a first thing Sunday morning reaction pod. And we'll be saving our official picks for that Friday Money Punch episode. So no picks today, just previews and breaking down the fights and the various angles. And there are a lot of angles to consider here. Uh, first, the basic facts of the main event. Canelo Alvarez is 59-2-2 with 39 knockouts. He's now 33 years old, still the biggest star in the sport, if no longer the pound-for-pound -pound king. 
He's the undisputed lineal four-belt super middleweight champion. Jermel Charlo is 35-1-1 with 19 KOs. He's also 33, and he's the undisputed lineal four-belt junior middleweight champion. And let me start, Kieran, by asking you about that undisputed four-belt champ versus undisputed four-belt champ angle. It's a big part of the marketing of this fight. These two guys just absolutely draped in hardware in all the promotional materials, and it's never happened before. Um, You know, back when there was one champ per division, lineal champ in one division versus lineal champ in another happened fairly frequently. But both fighters having four alphabet belts, the only other time that has happened was in a women's fight, Chantel Cameron versus Katie Taylor. As everyone knows, you and I are not fans of the alphabet groups, but this is still historic. Uh, Kieran, how much does that history matter to you? And how big a part is it of what you think sells this fight? So I do think it probably will help sell it uh, somewhat in that it's it's not just one guy moving up 14 pounds to challenge another one. It is the man who can claim to be the champion in one division up against the guy who can legitimately claim to be the champion in another division. I personally couldn't give a shit about the four belt versus four belt thing. Especially because one of the sanctioning bodies is going to strip Charlo the moment the bell rings for Mm. reasons. Um, (laughs) But what does matter and what does interest me and and actually kind of excite me is is what you touched on. Both men are the champions at their respective ways. It doesn't matter how many stupid belts they carry into the ring or how many they have at the end of it. Um, What matters is that they are each, as you said, the word that matters is their lineal champions. you know, Jamel is making a major statement by stepping up two weight classes to take on one of the very best in boxing. And Canelo, look, he's gotten some criticism for this fight. And yes, I would like to see him please fight David Benavidez eventually. He's also making a statement in the, you know, one could argue it's an, almost a no-win situation for him. Um, in that, you know, he's taken on a, 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 an ostensibly smaller guy. Look, last week you listed your top five instances of fighters moving up in weight. And there were some great ones. And Part of that, it showed, as you mentioned in the setup, that this kind of champion versus champion matchup has a proud heritage in boxing. And yes, both men have worthy challengers. We want to see them fight in their own weight divisions, specifically and notably Benavides for Canelo and Tim Zhu for Jamel Charlo. But they can get back to that business when this is done. Um, To answer your question, finally, four belts versus four belts. That doesn't interest me at all. I don't care how many belts they have. Although, like you said, it does look good in the promotional materials. It'll look good at the end of the fight when one of them has seven belts draped around (laughs) them. Um, But true lineal champion versus true lineal champion? Yeah, that interests me a lot. I'm actually all about it. Um, And so I'm directly related to that. Another major focus from the moment we found it was Mel and not Maul in this fight is what I just touched on, that weight difference. 154 to 168, that's two divisions, that's 14 pounds. It's a lot. But as you were discussing last week with Kevin Cunningham, I know, and you've talked about it before, I know you feel that size difference tends to be overrated. So how material is it here? Is Jamel's height and reach advantage perhaps just as important as Canelo's weight advantage here? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Does Canelo really have a size advantage here? Um, He will likely outweigh Jermel. Uh, Derek James told our friend Steve Farhood that he expects him to be between 163 and 165 at the weigh-in. Canelo will likely be 167 or 168. And on fight night, he could outweigh Charlo by 10 pounds or so, I'd say. Um, But Charlo is three inches taller 
and has a two and a half inch reach advantage. And those are set in stone. We don't have to wait for the weigh-in to know for sure about that. Um, I mentioned Steve Farhood. He provided a very interesting breakdown. He put together a list sort of like our top five countdown last week that you already referenced, looking at notable cases of fighters jumping two divisions. He had 19 examples, and in 12 of them, the smaller fighter moving up one. So again, it supports my belief that people weigh overrate size. So, you know, as soon as I hear someone say about this fight, Canelo's too big for Charlo, I know to ignore that person. Um, Not to say Canelo won't win or to say his size won't help him, but if you're dismissing Charlo because he's too small, I'm just checking out on whatever other opinions you may have on this matchup. Um, But so back to Steve's stats, 12 of the 19 smaller fighters won, and in four of the 19 cases, the smaller fighter had edges in height and reach, and three of those four won. Now, there are always other factors. The smaller but taller fighters who won were, at least in a couple of cases, just way superior fighters, like Tommy Hearns against Dennis Andres and Noya Inouye versus Omar Narvaez. The one larger fighter at a height and reach disadvantage who won happens to be Canelo himself against Amir Khan. Uh, Jermel Charlo has a much better chin than Khan, uh, and that was largely Khan's undoing in that fight. But if you want to draw some parallels between these two Canelo fights, I think that's reasonable. And look, Canelo is always giving up height and reach. He's used to that. But ultimately, in this fight, I do not believe size will be a determining factor. If Canelo wins, it will be because he's better, because he makes fewer mistakes, he has more experience in fights of this magnitude, etc., not because he's bigger. Um, and and I've, I've heard a common refrain that eh, Charlo can't win because, did you see how he struggled with Brian Castaño? Canelo is bigger and better than Castaño, so there's no path to victory for Charlo. Yes, Canelo is bigger than Castaño. Yes, Canelo is better than Castaño. But what Canelo is not is a fighter who will replicate Castaño's pesky activity, which was a big part of what gave Jermel fits. Uh, to me, Charlo Castaño is not at all a barometer for Canelo Charlo. So I started touching on some stylistic matchup factors uh, in there as I was answering your question. So why don't you take it a step further, Kieran? How do you see the styles meshing here? And what's the key to victory for Canelo? In, in other words, fill in the blank of... If Canelo is able to do blank, he wins the fight. Canelo has to make the ring small. It's as simple as that. Mm. And and that often is his key to victory. Um, he has lately for a, a number of guys like Caleb Plant, Billy Joe Saunders, Callum Smith, and others who have had height and reach, and in some cases movement over him. And he's had to bide his time and break them down by taking that footwork away from them. So... He needs to make sure Jamal's in punching range because he'll be at that reach of disadvantage, as you, as you mentioned. But he does have that good stiff jab and a brutal left hook to the body to enable him to do that. Um, I'd also want to see him luring Charlo onto him using that upper body movement to present a target and then roll out the way as he does so very well and counter. That's a real, real strength of his, uh, something he does exceptionally well. Um, Canelo can work off the ropes. It isn't a problem for him to be there. We all saw him Polak's James Kirkland off the ropes, for example. And although Mel can fight off the ropes, he probably doesn't want to be doing that, whereas Canelo will be more than happy to keep him there. So basically, yeah, look, Canelo can use his jab and his hook to slow Charlo down, to keep him in place and make the ring small. He wins the fight. 
but I'll reverse it for you. Give me any thoughts you have on the styles as you answer. If Charlo is able to do blank, he wins the fight. So you you worked the jab into your answer. It wasn't like the key to it, but it was part of it. And for Charlo, I think it's it's really is the central focus. If he is able to control the fight with his jab, he well, he could still get caught with something as Sergey Kovalev did, for example. But he has at least an excellent chance of winning if he uses the jab brilliantly. We know about the height and reach edges for Jamel. What I like about his jab is that he mixes it up. It comes at different tempos. It comes from different distances. Sometimes it follows a feint. Sometimes it doesn't. Most importantly, sometimes it's to the head and sometimes it's to the body. And a jab to Canelo's body, I think, will go a long way to disrupting his rhythm, preventing him from making the ring smaller and closing in as he wants to. Um, I have my doubts about whether Charlo can be as annoyingly busy with the jab as Dimitri Bivol was. Um, but, you know, he doesn't have to get all the way there. He just has to use it often enough and effectively enough to control the distance and make Canelo think and make Canelo hesitate. All that said, one mistake with the jab from Charlo could be devastating because Canelo is a great counterpuncher. He stands there in that high guard and just dares you to overcommit with something so he can counter, usually with the left hook. So it's a tightrope act for Charlo. Jab well. Don't get caught with a big counter. Um, for his part, Jermel also throws an excellent counter left hook. His is kind of a shorter punch, often thrown when he has his back to the ropes. So Canelo has to be wary, too. He's susceptible to that punch when he starts to get aggressive. Um, and you figure as the fight wears on, Canelo will get aggressive. In the early rounds, probably not. Um, I don't expect a high output fight in general. These are two fairly patient boxers. But as a fight wears on, Canelo usually steps up the pressure, shrinks the ring, as you were talking about. He never did against Bevel, but in most of his other fights, he has. And that's why he has 13 stoppages on his record in the eighth round or later, which is a hell of a stat. Um, one last observation before I you know, risk giving away my pick that I'll be making on Friday. You mentioned upper body movement for Canelo and how important that is. That's where he seems to have slowed down the most the last couple of fights. I, I see a real difference there. He's there to be hit now. Maybe not by a knockout blow, you know, not by something he doesn't see coming, but still, he's there to be hit more than ever before, and that'll also go a long way toward determining whether Charlo can win this fight, how stationary a target Canelo is. Uh, okay, let's finish the preview with some big-picture legacy questions. Does Jermel Charlo need to win this fight to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, and for Canelo, who already is a first ballot Hall of Famer, is greatest Mexican fighter ever still possibly within reach? So I don't think Jamel is presently a Hall of Famer, and I'm not actually sure how close he is to being one right now. Yeah. Um, does he need to win this fight to become a Hall of Famer? Doesn't need to win it, but it's a shortcut to consideration. Mm -hmm. And potentially makes an induction significantly more likely. I think one win over Canelo on Saturday does as much heavy lifting for his candidacy as several wins over the likes of Tim Zhu would do. Right. Um, with a caveat there that that may not apply if you've already touched on the fact, and it's certainly a factor here, that Canelo does appear to be slowing. And if there's a perception that Charlo wins because Canelo is, if not done, then on the road to done. Um, and particularly if Canelo then achieves nothing of great note 
subsequently in his career, you know, that will then have an asterisk against that. And he'll probably still need to get those wins over the likes of Tim Zhu um, to give him a shot. Winning doesn't guarantee Charlo entry to the Hall of Fame, but theoretically it will help immensely. Um, as for Canelo, man, the list of Mex- great Mexican fa- fighters is truly great. Um, you start off with Julio Cesar Chavez, Ruben Olivares, Carlos Zaretti, Salvador Sanchez. That's before you've even really got going. Um, it's before you get into the Barreras and the Moraleses and the Marquezes right. and so many others. Um, that said, he's absolutely still in consideration for it. When you stack up his achievements, um, and his length of time at the top, um, the weight divisions in which he's fought and won titles, the big fights he's been in, the big opponents he's beaten, yeah. He's absolutely still in consideration for it. If he beats Charlo on Saturday, then goes and say wipes out a David Benavidez, and you know, and then one more big fight calls it a day. Um, yeah, he's absolutely in consideration for that uh, conversation. I don't know that there's much he can do that would put him into the position that Chavez presently is in. Like Chavez is the default answer to that right. question. Um, I don't know if Canelo can put himself in as the default answer, but he can still put himself in a, well, it's probably Chavez, but there's a good case to be made for Canelo kind of a thing. And holy cow, that's a pretty damn good career. That's where you wind up, right? Even if you're the one A Mexican fighter or the two or the three or the four, that's an incredibly good career. And that's the path that Canelo is still on. It's a tricky time now, potentially. This fight is tricky. And as you mentioned, he he is slowing down. He's talked about the fact that he's not quite as good as he is. He's had knee injuries and knee surgeries and elbow surgeries and hand surgeries. So this is the difficult time now for him to either consolidate his record or risk not tarnishing it, but risk having that end of career record that so many fighters do. So, yeah, I think a a win keeps him in the conversation and where he ends up on that list depends how much longer he fights, how well he does over the rest of his career and who he fights and beats in his remaining months or years. Yeah, that's an interesting way to describe it, that that Chavez is the default answer and that about the best Canelo could do is to sort of insert himself into the conversation as a, yeah, but what about maybe think about this? And it, it sort of reminds me, as you were saying it, of the position LeBron James is in. Michael Jordan is the default answer. LeBron James has no chance, even though there are some people who will rank him first or whatever, he has no chance of becoming the default answer. What he has accomplished is to insert himself enough to make it a debate. And so I think that's maybe what Canelo's shooting for. Because, I, yeah, I mean, I would say I'm 98% sure the ship has sailed on him truly surpassing Chavez. Um, you, you talked about, you know, what he could still do going forward. I think he would probably need to actually get a rematch with Bevel and get revenge uh, if he could do that and and just have a great tale to his career, because that's something Chavez did not. He, he never had a significant win after age 32. So maybe if Canelo has two or three more big years, including that revenge win over Bevel, I, I guess it's possible then maybe that the hierarchy gets shaken up. But but I highly doubt it. I, I think once he lost to Bevel, it probably put enough distance between <laughs> the Chavez legend and the Canelo legend. And so what he's fighting for more is his place within the top 10, 
maybe the top five of the all-time Mexican greats, which is still be if he's top five, that's an incredible career given those names you were just uh, mentioning. Um, as for Charlo, I think a win here actually pretty much makes him a lock for the Hall of Fame, um, whereas a loss doesn't disqualify him, but would certainly make him an underdog to get in because I agree with you that looking at his career resume so far, if he loses to Canelo, doesn't add any other highly meaningful victories, then I'd say definitely not a Hall of Famer. But, you know, this this fight goes a long way, lose competitively and then go back down and have uh, some more meaningful wins, maybe. Um, but uh, speaking of legacy, I, I just want to also mention this is a huge legacy fight for Derek James, too, right? I mean... <clears throat> Fresh off absolutely everything going wrong for Spence against Crawford. If this goes poorly for Charlo, then, you know, fairly or not, there will be talk of Derek James is overrated. He was never any good. Flash in the pan, etc. Whereas if Charlo upsets Canelo, then the Spence loss is the outlier. That's the blip. And and Derek is still right in the conversation for best trainer in boxing. So So he has a lot on the line, too. Although, unlike the fighters he may have another decade or two or three to continue to define his legacy after this. Um, a quick note that the officials for the main event were announced last week. Uh, the referee will be Harvey Dock, and the judges are the infallible scoring machine, Steve Weisfeld, David Sutherland, and Max DeLuca. Uh, now let's shift to the undercard. Three fights, uh, well, actually six fights, if you count the three streaming fights that were just announced on Friday. Frank Sanchez versus Scott Alexander, Alexander Gvozdik versus Isaac Rodriguez, and Terrell Gachet versus Keandre Leatherwood. But it's the pay-per-view portion of the undercard that has the hardcore fight fans buzzing in the co-main at 154 pounds. Jesus Ramos Jr. meets Erickson Lubin. In a battle of veteran welterweights, your Dennis Ugas faces Mario Barrios. And to open the pay-per-view, up-and-coming middleweights Elijah Garcia and Armando Resendez square off. We've talked a bit about each of these fights the last several weeks. We'll break down each one on Friday when we make our picks. But for now, Kieran, tell me which fight or fighter you're most looking forward to seeing. Look, it's a terrific card from top to bottom, as you, as you pointed out and as we've talked about. But the fight that I've been having erotic dreams about since it was an <laughs> It's Jesus Ramos versus Erickson Lubin. I love everything about this fight. Um, I have been very impressed with Ramos. I love his power, his skill, his style. And Lubin, yeah, sure, he's had a couple of losses, but that happens. He's also had some very high-quality wins. And as we were discussing with uh, with Kevin Cunningham, uh, he looked terrific last time out against Cooper Arias. Um, this is the kind of fight that should provide answers to a bunch of questions. Um, is Ramos the real deal? for example. This is a big step up for him. Will Lubin show that Ramos either isn't yet ready for the big time or might not ever quite be ready for the big time? Conversely, has Lubin's race been run? Has he made it as far as he's going to go? And is the young gun Ramos going to put further dents in what might be a vulnerable chin? Um, look, both men have a lot riding on this fight. The winner is immediately in world title territory. The loser has to find his way back up the ladder, and that would be a challenge for both men for different reasons. Lubin, because he's been down the ladder a couple times already, and Ramos, because immediately people will wonder whether he should have ever been on the ladder in the first place. Um, and then you add to that, not just what's at stake here for both men, the questions to be answered, but just watch video of the two guys. Look how they fight, and then picture the two of them in the ring together with the way that they fight. 
it's almost impossible for me to imagine that this will not be an exciting, high stakes, skillful, but brutal, and almost surely less than 12 rounds battle. And honestly, dude, I can't wait for it. I am as excited about this as I am for the main event. Um, so same question for you. What stands out most on this undercard for you? Certainly Rob, Ramos Lubin is, is a great pick. Oh, okay. um, but uh, but I'm finding myself pretty much equally drawn to the opening fight on the card. Garcia versus Resendez. I just love fights like this. Uh, Elijah Garcia, he has next big thing potential. He's only 20 years old, carries himself with maturity beyond his years. He's fighting for the third time in six months, all against dangerous opponents. The combined record uh, of these three is 45-2-1. and one. He's a right-hander who fights southpaw, so he has a heavy jab and a heavy right hook. And he's the favorite here on paper, but not by a lot. Uh, Resendez... You know, he doesn't come with as much hype, and he does have one loss on his record, but he is a serious young up-and-comer, too. He's only 24. He's fresh off a career-best win over Jared Hurd. Before that, he stopped 20-1 Heber Rondon, who, by the way, fought as a southpaw, like Garcia does. Um, But what I really like about this fight is similar to what you were saying about Ramos and Lubin. It's the fan-friendly style matchup. Garcia is a power puncher. He may start a bit slow, but then he gets aggressive while Resendez is fearless. He shows up in great shape. He'll walk through some serious fire. Uh, Remember all those flush uppercuts that Jared Hurd landed on him. This fight, I think, has huge potential to provide fight of the year level action. This is the way you open up a pay-per-view. Mm-hmm. All right. Our, uh, <laughs> I think we're pretty excited. Yes, I, think I would say so. Say. We're pretty amped. All right. Our guest this week is the host of this Saturday's pay-per-view, as he is for all Showtime boxing pay-per-views and championship boxing events. And you can also see him on TV, well, actually pretty much every time you turn on your TV. Uh, He is the hardest working man in sports broadcasting, our friend, Brian Custer. Custer, welcome back to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. My guys, E, (laughs) Kieran, what's up? Hey man, I like that I get the single letter. You, you, you don't. He doesn't get K, huh? No, no K for Kieran. He's too formal. You can't go with just a K with Kieran. You can't I, do that with him. I guess he, not. Like, Yo, what's up, E? Yeah, there's he something. Lies, about, my guy. There's something about names that start with E that people just uh, want to call you E. So yep. uh, you're you're certainly permitted to do so, Brian. Appreciate. <laughs> um, so Canelo Charlo fight week is here, and everyone in the industry has a different story on hearing that it would be. Canelo versus Jermel, not Canelo versus Jermall. Um, you have some insider status as a member of the Showtime team. Did you know it would be Jermel before most of the rest of the world? And, and what was your reaction whenever it was that you found out that it was uh, Jermel? I did. You know, uh, truth be told, I, I even knew before the powers that be at Showtime knew. And mm-hmm. only for the simple fact that uh, I had by coincidence, talking to Jermel about something totally opposite of the fight. And we were just talking about different things and we were getting into maybe Spence Crawford and, you know, what does Errol have to do? And, and I said, you know, talk to me about, you know, Tim Zhu and when do you feel like, you know, you're ready? He said, I don't really think I'm going to fight Tim Zhu. And I said, who, who will you fight? And he said, well, if you can keep a secret, um, yeah, I'm going to fight Canelo. And I said, uh, you mean your brother's fighting Canelo? 
And he said, nah, uh, my brother's in, in no way in any shape to be fighting right now. And, you know, I've been having some talks uh, with Al and I'm going to be the one. And I'm. And this was back and I'm going to tell you, this was back when Tim Zussi, Tim Zussi beat uh, Carlos Campa, right? He beat right. him a few months ago. So this was maybe about, I want to say maybe about a few weeks before that fight. And oh, before Zoo had even had that fight. Yes. Wow. Wow. And I said, really? So you were not going to fight? And he said, no, I'm there. He's like, but do not say anything. And I was like, okay. And. I remember, I can't remember who it was. Somebody in the media had reported that Maul and Canelo was done. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I ended up calling Jamel again, like, are you sure? I mean, and he said, do not believe what you read. I'm telling you, it will be me. And I said, okay. And at one of our meetings, I, I remember they were talking about different things. And I think somebody asked Espinosa about, the Canelo thing, and it, was it true? And he said, well, I know Al is working on something. I said, well, what would you think if it would be Mel as opposed to Maul? And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. Oh, what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, I'm, I don't know. I just, just seems like Maul is not ready. I mean, he doesn't look like he's in shape or doesn't look like he's been fighting. And they're like, oh, Brian, please. <laughs> it happened. And I, I remember and Mel, Mel would tell you this, too. He said... I owe you when he said, you know what? You're my guy from here on out because you kept yeah. the secret. You didn't say anything to anybody. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I found out a while before. Yeah, that's wow. that's pretty impressive. That's that's yeah. the big takeaway for me is that Brian Custer can keep a secret because I, that, I mean, it, sound, it sounds like it was at least about a full month or so that you knew. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, he told me don't say a word to anybody. Don't say nothing. And I was like, okay, uh, you know, all right. Because he, he even said that Canelo people kind of wanted to let it out. Who were they? Who were they going to fight? So I said, okay, mm. all right. So, the, in response to you know that announcement and in the build-up, to some, some folks feel that maybe Canelo has a lot to lose here and not a lot to gain. Like if he wins, oh, big deal. He's beating 154 pounders now, yeah. whereas a loss would be like devastating. Do you agree with that assessment? I mean, I think. Listen, I think it, it is one of those fights where I think they both have a lot to gain. And I think they, they both, if with any loss, you know, you, you, I mean, it, it, it would be a resounding loss, I think for obviously for Canelo because Mel is coming up. Um, but Mel's a good fighter. Mel's a big guy. And I love that he wants to challenge himself. And I, I love that he's always seen himself fighting Canelo. I love that, you know, he says, look, I want to be great. Um, I think for Canelo, it's about enhancing his legacy. I mean, hell, he can put on there now that I beat an, an undisputed champion, a guy who wiped out 154, who's a big guy who was looking to move up anyway. Um, I think he puts that on his resume. And then listen, let's let's not uh, dance around one of the other things that people always talk about. Canelo. People always be like, well, why don't Canelo fight black fighters? Well, hell, he's fighting one that's at the top. So now you can't throw that at him anymore. So I think I think it's a it's a great fight. Uh, it's a really interesting fight for both guys. I think they both have a lot to gain. And uh, and with any fight, you know, when you lose, you know, you lose a lot. 
So you recently interviewed both of these guys on uh, the Last Stand podcast, available wherever podcasts are found. Plug, plug. Um, yeah, the Showtime, the Showtime <laughs> Sports YouTube page where you can find this one as well. That's right. Um, so you you interviewed both of these guys, and and of course you were at their press conferences. Um, any observations on either guy from talking to them? Anything about their mental state, their confidence? Was there anything that stood out in talking one on one with these guys? I, I think I love that. I think I love that Canelo was honest. Like when I was asking him, like, you know, people was like saying, you slipping, man. Your defense is slipping. That John Ryder gave you the business. Um, you took a lot of punishment more than what you usually have taken. And that if he was, you know, a little heavier of a puncher that you could have taken some some damage in that fight. And he said, no, look, they're right. He said his wrist wasn't all the way healed. Couldn't train like he wanted to train. And he showed the effects in there. He said, but I, I guarantee you, it is totally healed. I'm ready. And I'm ready to show you all that uh, I am still that guy. And um, and I think that's that's what he, that's his challenge here. To show everybody, hey, look, everybody's talking about NUA. Everyone's talking about Bud Crawford. Uh, I, uh, I'm still pound for pound king of boxing. Um, I think that's what I took from him that he was really honest about it and that he's been training hard for this fight to show that. Uh, and then on, on the flip side, I think from Charlo's perspective, I think that, you know, he wants to get in there and he knows that people say, Hey, look, it's been like basically a year, uh, over a year since you fought is that hand totally healed. And he's like, look, this is, this is about for me legacy. This is about proving the doubters. I'm always been that one Charlo that people still always had that questions, even though he always feels like his resume is much better than his brother's. And I've accomplished more that people still like, oh, but he does this. Oh, but da da da. And, and he said, you know, this this is the fight where I erase all of that stuff. So I think they both have a lot. That's to me, that's what I took from it most. A, that Mel focused, uh, B, uh, Canelo being brutally honest, like, hey, look, I wasn't really healthy. I am healthy here, and I'm going to show you that I'm the pound-for-pound pound best fighter in boxing. So Eric and I have talked quite a bit on the podcast about how much we love the undercard of this pay-per-view. Yeah. Ramos Lubin, Ugas Barrios, Garcia Resendez, all compelling fights on paper. Anything out of those? Is there any one fight that really stands out to you that you think is particularly compelling? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, when you talk about Ramos and Lubin, I, first, first of all, I love Erickson Lubin because you want to talk about somebody who's going to fight anybody. Erickson Lubin's that guy. And I love what he has done since the Charlo laws, even from Fundora. Like, you know, this guy's like, yo, bring it on. I'm, I'm, I want the belt. And, and I think that Ramos is so good. I mean, that fight is going to be all action because you know Ramos wants the business. And as soon as you touch Lubin, say what you want. People can talk about his jaw, that his chin, that he's not. But if you touch Erickson Lubin, he's going to fight. And that, to me, I cannot wait to see that fight. I think that's really interesting. Uh, Mario Barrios and Ugas, I think, to me, is a really good fight at, at Welterweight because you want to see if, if Ugas still has it, so to speak. Um, you know, did, did he get damaged too much from the Errol Spence fight? And then on the flip side, Mario Barrios, you know, can he be a, a, a real player at welterweight? You know, and and God bless him. They keep serving him to the wolves, it seems like. When every every fight is like, damn, Mario Barrios got to walk through this guy. You know, was, whether it's Thurman or whomever it is, 
at welterweight. My goodness. Um, so, you know, that to me, that's that's what I'm really interested in, too, to see which one of those guys can be a real legitimate player at 147. Uh, does Ugas still have it to, you know, maybe possibly even challenge a Bud Crawford or whomever uh, at welterweight? And uh, Lubin and Ramos to see which one of those guys, uh, because I, I think undoubtedly the winner of that fight will probably be looking at Tim Zhu, be like, yo, I'm trying to fight Tim Zhu or Mendoza, the winner of that fight, and, and get that belt because, you know, they're going to strip Mel as soon as he steps into the ring. Yeah, This is one of the all time pay-per-view cards in terms of you tell all your friends, if you're the host, you tell all your friends, show up, show up right when it starts. You yes. don't want to miss any of this undercard. And this is, this is where you find out who the real fight fans are. If you just roll in for the yes. main event of this one, you're, you're not a serious boxer. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, they, even the first, the first fight is going to be really good. I mean, we saw what they young kid did the last time we had him on there when he came and got that, that stoppage. So man, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. It's like, if you love boxing, you're going to watch this entire card from start mm-hmm. to finish. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, enough about these boxers. Let's talk about you, Brian. Um, you recently celebrated 10 years cancer free since a prostate cancer diagnosis, and you were named an ambassador for the American Cancer Society. And you're making a point of telling your story in the hopes of helping others. Yeah. So for anyone in our audience who missed you on Good Morning America and, and needs to hear the message, what is your story? What is it that the men in our audience need to know? Well, you know, first of all, that prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men here in the United States. That's number one. Uh, I don't know if people realize that. Um, It is. Uh, Number two, that it is affecting men of color at twice the rate, uh, almost three times the rate that it does white males. And we're twice as likely to die from it uh, as white males. So that's why, first of all, I want all men to get annual physical and get a PSA test, especially at the age of 40. Um, that's that's number one. Uh, number two, if you're a black male, you really need to get uh, a, an annual checkup and a PSA test, especially if you're 40 uh, and over because of the aggressiveness at the rate that this disease is prevalent in our community. And, you know, for me, again, I'm a person that goes to the doctor every year, stay in the best shape that I could. Uh, I got my first PSA test at 40. Number was kind of high, but I kind of blew it off. Uh, When I had it at 41, I had my physical, told the doctor, yeah, let's not do the PSA. We did it last year. It was, you know, don't worry about it. I think when when I had it at 40, my number was 2.4. And if anybody knows, the doctor will tell you if it's over a four, you got problems. Okay. So that should tell you right now, at the age of 40, Mine was a 2.4. Generally, men don't have, you're not even in whole numbers until you're in your late 60s, 70s. Mm-hmm. So that should, have, that should that should have been an alarm right there that something's wrong. If you're only 40 years old and you're pumping out a 2.4 uh, when you have a PSA test. Blew it off at 41, uh, 42, had my physical again. Doc said, yo, let's do the PSA. And I was like, ah, oh, we did it last year. Doc, I'm good. And he looked and the record said, no, you said no last year. We didn't do it last year. Well, let's do it. He gave me a digital rectal exam. I was like, yo, I felt a bump on your prostate too. So let's really do it. We did it. Results came back. It was a 5.2. So it had basically more than double in the year's time. 
And uh, he, he told me, he said, the only way we're going to really know what was going on with you, Brian, right now is if uh, you have a biopsy. I was like, man, a biopsy. And uh, man, we we did the biopsy. They took out 12 specimens, sent them out, and then they came back. Uh, out of those 12 specimens, seven were cancerous. Mm. And, you know, I remember the doc told me, he's like, you know, Brian, I just called me into his office and said, I got your results back. Uh, you got cancer. It's not fucking around. You know, don't tell me that you have a favorite nephew who's about to graduate. Uh, don't tell me you got a vacation set up in the next two weeks. He said, I'm not going to lie to you. I need to get you in surgery. I need to get you in surgery now. Mm. And, uh, and I told him, I wow. said, doc, I said, doc, I've never had major surgery in my life. You know, can we, can I take a pill? You know, can I do something? He said, sure, whatever you like. If, we can go through some other things, and if that makes you comfortable, we we can we can try whatever is like. It is your decision. He said, "My my my recommendation to you is to have surgery and have surgery immediately." And I said, "Okay, great. I, I'm with that." Now, what happens if you know uh, I don't go through surgery and we do these things, and let's say they don't they don't hurt they don't work as well as we think? He said, "You'd probably be dead within a year." Wow. Uh, I mean, you could have hit me with a feather, man. I cried like a baby yeah. uh, in his office. And uh, yeah, I had surgery, man, three weeks later after that day. I had surgery three weeks later after going through a series of tests. Uh, and luckily, you know, here I am 10 years later. I mean, all I could think about then was, you know, I had three boys. Will I see them grow up? Will they see them go to high school? Will I see them go to college? Will I see them get married? Will I see them have kids? Well, Hell, two of them are in college right now. The third one's in eighth grade, and so I'm 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 already already at one of the the uh, the goals that I had. Um, it's ten years later, and now I'm, I'm here. I'm talking to you uh, now. It wasn't with the challenges. I mean, you know, I thought maybe after surgery everything was great, and luckily I did go have checkups every three months, every three months, every three months. And maybe like two, two and a half years after surgery, my numbers started going up a little bit more. I had to go through 38 bouts of high-grade radiation mm. um, to get, you know, get that. Um, but, you know, look, again, I'm here. And, and I just I just don't want – I don't want anybody else to go through it. And the thing about prostate cancer, it's a silent killer. You'll never know that you have it until it's too late. And yeah. the, the, the good thing is it is curable. It's treatable. If you catch it early, that's the key. Luckily for me, I caught mine before it could spread. It was right there. It was bubbling in my prostate and ready to leave my prostate. And generally what happens is when it leaves your prostate, it goes up your spine and it's a rat. You're, you're usually dead. Like he's, like doc was telling me, you're usually dead within the year. So luckily for me, um, I got it before it could do any damage. And that's why I've been on this this bully pulpit to you know get men to get checked. It is treatable as long as you catch it early. And the only way you're going to catch it early is if you get a PSA test and get your annual physical. It's almost a cliche question, but do you look at life a little differently every day? I mean, I look at I, I think you know. Look, my I have a 13 year old. He's my youngest. Uh, I mean, I hug, kiss him every day. I mean, I'm oh, he's like this dude. God dang, dad. Please. <laughs> uh, you know, so, but I, you know, you do, you, you, there's nothing I take for granted anymore. Uh, and there's nothing, uh, you know, there, there's, there is even, 
I took a word out of my uh, a word out of my uh, vernacular and my vocabulary, and that's overwhelming. I used to say that over all the time. Man, I got so much going on. This is overwhelming. I don't even use that anymore. Mm. I don't even use it. Anymore. I may I may say, hey, look, that's a lot, but okay, but I don't use it anymore because, man, I just I I I love life. Uh, I love living every day. Uh, I try to be a better person because of it. Um, I know I'm not perfect, but it it whenever you face your mortality, it changes your perspective on life. Yeah. And this and this what we're doing here and um, the job we do. And just people, man. I, you know, I'm, I'm just more, I'm more of a hugger now. And I'll, you know, tell people more like, hey, what's up? Uh, how you doing, man? Man, I love you, man. I really love you. Yeah. Know you do that more because you've seen your mortality, so to speak. You faced it. Yeah, I mean, I quasi joked with the intro about how busy you are and you are doing a lot of stuff. But I know you love your family and you're very much a family man. And I imagine. You're very keen on striking that balance. And yeah, I got to work. I got to work for my family. Yeah. I like my work, yeah. but I got to make sure I'm there for them too. I right? Make sure I'm there for them. And, uh, you know, usually if you see me a lot of times for some of the big events, they're with me. Like I'll bring the boys with me to, mm. to the big fights too. They enjoy it. Um, and so that's another way that I feel like we can make memories together. Uh, because they enjoy being on the road too, and the vet, whether it's the fights or whether it's a game that I'm doing, uh, they enjoy that. And that, that's what I've started to do incorporate them a lot more. Awesome. All right. Let, let's end with a, a couple more boxing topics and um, I'll go first with actually a, a negative one. And then, and then we'll let Kieran finish this conversation on a more upbeat <laughs> note. Um, the negative topic, boxing has a PED problem. We've mm -hmm. known this for decades, but mm -hmm. it's been in the news a lot lately. One fighter after another testing positive for banned substances. Is the boxing media paying enough attention to this? And do you see any path for the sport making this less of a problem going forward? Listen, I think these guys are so much. They're making so much money now. Uh, number one. Uh, number two, I think they are really really good on knowing how to beat the system even with vada knowing how to circle on circle off in time hey if i got my fight out at you know a couple of months out okay i know when to circle on on these things that you know and i gotta circle off at least four or five weeks before that fight you know what i mean mm -hmm. uh, these guys are really good now um on that and i'll be honest with you um I think it was Julian Williams, and it was maybe about a good year and a half ago. We had J-Rock on the last stand, and I remember I was asking him, and I can't remember who got busted for PEDs, and I asked him that question like, how, do you, how, how much do you think guys at your level are using? And he said, 75% of the guys. Wow. I thought I was, I was like, Jay Rock, come on. And he said, okay, 75% of the wow. guys. He said, most of these guys are so good. And he said, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm a Philly guy. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just work hard. You know, you look at me, you see my body. My body really hasn't changed too much. He's like, why don't you look at some of how these, some of these guys have just jumped weight divisions, how they carry this power, how they, you know, can do these rounds. And he was like, so I, I, when he told me that then I was like, wow, 
and now I'm like, you know what? Maybe some truth to what he was talking about. And that was like a good couple of years ago. Right. So it basically, it's, it's something that I hate to say it, but I, it feels like we all feel like it's not really going to get resolved. It's not no, it's kind I, of something we have to live with as yeah, boxing fans. Absolutely. Because those guys, you know, they, they, they know how to circle around the test. They know how to beat it sometimes. And then there's just, listen, there's so much money. And some of those guys are like, okay, well, all right, you got me. I'm I'm suspended for six months. All right, I just got paid millions. All right, cool. Right. Yeah. I'll take. I'll. I'll I'm gonna fight in the next six months anyway. Exactly. Right. <laughs> At this rate here, I wasn't gonna fight for another year. So anyway, yeah. 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 That's that's one of the problems. Here. Yeah. All right. Let's finish with a fun one here. Uh, hypothetical fights. They're not happening in 2023. They could be massive fights that could get done in the next year or two. Uh, Bud Crawford versus Boots Ennis, Tank Davis versus Shakur Stevenson. You mm. are the czar of boxing. You have complete power, but you only get to let one of these two fights happen. What are you going to pick? Tank versus Shakur or Bud Crawford versus Boots. Boots. Uh, can I... Can you I can't, do a, you can't a, phone a friend. A header and then one of them is the main event, the other one's the co-main. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so that's what I would do if I'm the czar of boxing. <laughs> or like well, we did a we did a twin bill with Charlo during the ep- the pandemic. Right. We did right. a Charlo double header uh pay-per-view. That that's something I would do. I would I mean, I would love to put both of those on. We just had Shakur. Well, I said, and that's all he said. He goes, I know Tank ain't mentioning my name. That's the biggest fight for him mm-hmm. at my weight division. You can forget about all these other guys. Forget about Pitbull. He said, forget about all of those cats. Me and Tank is what mm-hmm. everyone wants to see. And I'm I'm with you. I would love to see that. And I don't think I think all of us want to see Boots Ennis, you know, tackle one of the top guys. I mean, if it's if it's not Keith Thurman then why not? Let it be Bud Crawford. I mean, I know he's foaming at the mouth to get his hands on Bud Crawford. So yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to have one of those. They, they can, they can uh, flip a coin on who, who's the main event. <laughs> I was going to say, good luck getting either tank or Bud to be a co-main at this point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell, I'll tell, look, you know, with those guys, as long as the money's right. Yeah. They're good. As long as the money's right. <laughs> <laughs> hey Brian, look, thanks a lot. It's always great to have you on, and uh, we really appreciate you putting some time aside. Uh, and I know you got to go off and spend some time with your boys now. So um, go off and do that, and uh, all the best for fight week. And we'll talk to you again soon, my friend. All right, guys. You know it's always a pleasure rapping with you guys. We got to do this again. We got to do this. It's, it's almost like you guys wait for the big fights. I mean, you know, we got plenty of fights down the line that we can we can do this more often. See, you know how you guys are. You always are like, you know, nah, we're only going to talk to you when there's a big fight. <laughs> there's other good stuff we had. It's been a great you know, year. We could talk about other stuff, too. We, you know what I mean? It doesn't have to be. We'd have paper. you on every week if we could. And yeah. I'm not lying. Yeah, we were trying to be respectful of what we assume is a very busy schedule. But from what <laughs> it sounds like, you can make time for us every week. Fine. <laughs> I love it. I love it. No, I appreciate you guys. I love you both. Oh, many thanks indeed, Brian Custer, for that interview. I mean, we love Brian. Absolutely yeah. love it. One of the classiest and nicest guys in this business. Always a joy to talk with him. Um, classy and nice are not two words that are commonly associated with me, on the other hand. And Eric, 
you certainly won't be likely to use them after this week's edition of the fight game. Oh boy! I'm, afraid to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually really proud of myself for this one, but it's a different kind of fight game. Um, I'm going to say up front, there's a good chance you've never seen this fight. Hmm. You might not even know this fight ever happened. I didn't until I stumbled across it while trying to think of possible fights to feature. Others may be far more aware of it than I than I. But I guarantee you know both fighters. Both of them are very famous in the sport and beyond, albeit for different reasons. I will give you one clue to start it off. Okay. All right. You've got my, my curiosity has peaked before we've even hit clue one, and I am pre pre prepared to potentially be angry at you, but I guess we'll see. Right. And I think my tip would be don't necessarily try to focus on the fight. Just focus on the individuals okay. in case you didn't know that they fought. I mean, okay. I might be the only person on earth who never knew that these guys fought, but there you go. Okay. Um, all right. The one clue to start you off. It took place on August 18th, 1969 at Madison Square Garden. And just a other little thing that has nothing to do. You can discard this, but I thought it was an interesting tidbit. It was on a card that featured future referee Randy Newman winning his professional boxing debut. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Uh, so have a date and a place. Yes, I have a date and a place. Uh, world events. We are certainly somewhere right around the moon landing, right? August 1969. I forget the exact date, but it was definitely 1969. I don't know if that in any way, I don't know if like Neil Armstrong factors into the answer here. <laughs> Henry Armstrong versus Neil Armstrong at Madison <laughs> Square Garden. Um, oh, God, she got it. <laughs> um, was there a boxer named Aldrin that we could pair Henry Armstrong uh, <laughs> against? Um August 1969, MSG. So I guess I would think of maybe like a young Roberto Duran on his way up or some. Uh, I'm not coming up with anything resembling a guess here. So why don't we move on to clue two? Okay. The winner of this contest was a future world champion and Hall of Famer who entered the ring with a record of just 3-0 and and ended his career 76-5. and the loser entered the ring 19-4-2, finished his career 36-14-2, and is more famous for whom he lost to than who he beats. Okay, so I am almost certain that I know who the future champ and Hall of okay. Famer is because I know that record. Uh, That's the danger. That's how I got Barrera <laughs> when he did the Barrera Junior Jones thing. Right, right. His record jumped out at you. So uh, unless I am... I could be misguided, but this would certainly fit 76 and five. I am almost certain that was the final record of one George Foreman. Okay. You've got one half of the equation. Okay. All right. So he was up against someone who you said was 19, four and two read for me again, the second half of the clue about the loser, please. Yep. The loser entered the ring 19, four and two finished his career 36, 14 and two, and is more famous for whom he laughed to than who he beat. So the the person coming right to mind, and if this is the right answer, then I too did not know or recall that he fought George Foreman. But the the record sounds about right, and the more famous for who he lost to, my mind goes to Chuck Weppner. Is it fantastic? All well, right, well done. I had no idea they fought. Least yeah. of all, Foreman's fourth fight. Yeah, that's crazy that that's who he fought in his fourth pro fight. That's that's moving fast. Uh. 
Yeah, if if I did know that, I had forgotten it. I've written, I interviewed Chuck Greppner and wrote a story about him for ESPN once. So probably in researching that, I came across this, but I certainly didn't recall it uh, now. So it was just your clues. Your clues pointed me in the right direction. Awesome. And he, he, these were going to be the rest of them. Number three, as well as losing to this future all-time great world champion, the loser also fought a former all-time great world champion and even challenged a reigning all-time great world champion. Okay, so uh, obviously the reigning one, the reigning one was Ali, who was who was the former one that he would have fought. Sonny Liston. He, fought, okay. he lost Sonny Liston right. in 1970. Right. Okay. Um, uh, number four, and if you hadn't gotten it by number three, you would have got it with number four. Although he lost that world title challenge, the loser dexed the champion and inspired an, an aspiring actor and screenwriter to go away and write a screenplay in just three days. Right. So, so yes, that. yeah, I would have definitely gotten that. I guess the question is whether I possibly wouldn't have thought of George Foreman yet at this point if I did. Since and, the clues three and four didn't really mention Foreman. So if I didn't get him off too, maybe I still wouldn't have him. But And if not, then clue five. By George, the winner had a career <laughs> so lengthy and momentous it needed two acts, but he needed just three rounds to stop this real-life Rocky, who, true to form, was bleeding profusely before being stopped in three. <laughs> wow, yes, that, that, that is, uh, I would think, even a possibly brain-dead guesser would have gotten it by the end of Clue 5. <laughs> Thankfully, have... I'm I'm a couple notches above brain dead, so good for yeah, me. And because, yeah, I mean, that was good. <laughs> because it was such an obscure fight, I wanted to make the clues like a little yeah. better and clearer. I'm still impressed you got it in two, though. I don't think I would have done. And I'm still uh, just disappointed there was no connection whatsoever to the moon landing. <laughs> well, um, maybe uh, I guess it's fair to say that Chuck was buzzed. <laughs> That's true. There you go. And uh, and George hit him with his strong arms. <laughs> Hold on. I I am now looking up the date of the moon landing. Uh, I want to see July exactly. July twenty first, sixty nine. I think. Very very close. July twentieth, nineteen sixty nine. Although it may depend what time zone you're in. Maybe it was July twenty first somewhere. Um, yes. But uh, so yeah. So this was basically like a month after the moon landing. Mm. Uh, Foreman and Webner. Hit him to the moon, Chuck. To the moon. <laughs> Good stuff. I like that. Nice, nice change of pace. I thought so. Yeah, I was, I was pretty happy with that one. But anyway, we move All on. right. We do. Uh, we were going to do a hodgepodge segment this week of news, previews, and post fights. But there somehow was not a single news item that demanded our attention. So it'll just be some quick previews and post fights. And let's lead it off with the big heavyweight rematch that took place in London on Saturday. Zhule Zhang repeated his win over Joe Joyce and did so much more quickly the second time around. He started landing flush southpaw left hands in round two and late in round three. That once seemingly impervious chin of Joyce's crumbled from a right hook. Uh, Kieran... Is Zhang a threat to the top heavyweights, or were these results more about the matchup and, and Joyce's deficiencies? And any other observations about this stunningly quick destruction? I'll say this. When I've seen Zhang Zhilai before, I was not particularly impressed. Um, he looked poor against Jerry Forrest. He didn't look fantastic against Philip Herkovich. And suddenly he goes up against Joe Joyce and he looks like a world beater. And so you have to figure that there's an element of styles make fights here. Mm. Um, and in hindsight, um, Joyce was perhaps tailor-made for Zhang here. It's someone who's even slower than him. 
um, and whose defense has consisted largely of absorbing the other punch, other person's punches until they're exhausted and he can knock him over. Um, the question that continues to follow Zhang around concerns his stamina, but Joyce was never able to ask that question. Um, and I'll say this, I think that Joe Joyce is done. Um, I know we always talk the talk about not writing boxes off once they lose, and that's correct. But not all losses are the same, and different losses can tell us different things. Joyce is, uh, I think, 37 years old. Mm -hmm. He has historically relied on a great chin, but it now appears that that chin might not be the redoubtable and impermeable barrier, barrier that it had been. Um, that happens, right? It happens to Antonio Margarito eventually. Um, happens to a lot of fighters with good chins. But a lot of those fighters who have really good chins never get sparked out quite like that. George Tuvalu never got dropped. Larry Holmes didn't get stopped until he faced the young Mike Tyson after he'd been retired a few years. And more to the point, it looked like Joyce didn't have any confidence in his chin at any point. In fact, he didn't look like he had any confidence in any aspect of himself yeah. at any point. Um, his stance was wrong. He was trying to be something that he wasn't. He was trying to box. He, he, he weighed in so much more heavily. He was constantly reactive, all of which showed that the first fight had affected him much more, I think, psychologically as well as physically than he dared to admit perhaps to himself, let alone anybody else. And from that second round, when Zhang began to open up and Joyce did very little except attempt to cover up, it didn't look good. He looked better early in that third round and then boom, um, that beautiful right hook was all she wrote. Um, it was a poor performance, frankly, from Joyce, who suddenly, did, like I said, he looks like a finished fighter to me, certainly at the top level. Um, is Zhang a legitimate threat to the top heavies? He's a big dude and he can punch. Yeah. So, yeah, he's always going to have that shot. Um, that said, I suspect Tyson Fury is licking his lips. Um, given that it is becoming increasingly clear that Fury seemingly has no intention of fighting Alexander Usyk ever and is at this stage purely money focused, apparently he offered to spar Joyce if Joyce paid him $10,000 a round. Can you believe it? Um, <laughs> Um, I can actually see him wanting to, to fight John when he's dispensed of uh, Francis Ngannou, uh, especially if authorities or, or whoever in China stump up money to have it in Beijing, which you could see them doing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, unless the CCC, CCP decides it's not comfortable with hordes of drunken manks descending on their country. Um, I mean, that would be huge, you know, have it at the bird's nest there in, in Beijing, 90,000 people could be massive. I'm sure that would completely appeal to Tyson Fury. And I'm sure he would feel extremely comfortable at being able to keep Zhang at the end of his jab and just beat him up, take him into the late rounds and finish him off. I don't think Zhang's a threat to Tyson Fury at all. Um, but I don't know that he's much of a threat to Alexander Usyk, but he, because he can hit hard. He's a threat to just about, you know, everybody else, even if he's not guaranteed to win. Look, I think Zhang deserved the opportunity to fight Tyson Fury the first time he, he beat Joy Joyce. I, right. I didn't think it was right that Joyce had uh, an automatic rematch clause. He didn't deserve it. And as he as was proved on Saturday, there was no merit in it. Um, Zhang deserves the opportunity to fight Tyson Fury even more now. Uh, and I kind of hope he gets it. He'll lose, I think, but he deserves that opportunity.
Yeah, whether he'll get it, I think, largely depends on, you know, the fact that he is a professional boxer and Tyson Fury may or may not be interested in facing them anymore for there the rest that. of his career. There so is there, that. there's that. That is part of it. That is part of it. Yes. Um, so I, I have nothing else uh, really to add about the fight itself. Uh, you covered that nicely, but I will quickly relate some uh, some quick uh, tales of betting here. Uh, you'll recall that I hemmed and hawed on last week's pod about which way I thought the fight would go. But the more I thought about it, the more confident I grew in Zhang. So I did bet him as a minus 120 favorite. And then I was watching the live odds on DraftKings. And at the start of the second round, for some reason, Zhang had shifted to a plus 105 underdog. I guess maybe Joyce won the first round, but I I hadn't seen anything to make me think Joyce should be favored to win. So I bet Zhang again at plus 105 and the bet processed. And like two seconds later, he was a minus 140 favorite because he's landed his first good left hand. So I, I got the bet in at the perfect time, the only moment when Zhang was an underdog. And then toward the end of the third round, I went to check the odds again and the fight was no longer listed. And I thought... Hmm, that's strange. I wonder if the fight is over and this ESPN stream is behind real time. So I looked up at my TV and boom, right hook, fight's over. <laughs> so yeah, ESPN streams must be at least 30 seconds, maybe a minute behind real time, which is not ideal if you're looking to do live betting, that the sports books are a little ahead of you. But uh, in this case, anyway, the, the live odds checking kind of spoiled the ending of the fight for me by a few seconds. Oh, interesting. Oh, well. Um... The other Saturday card of note was in Orlando, Florida, where Sandy Ryan and Jessica McCaskill fought to a controversial draw and about for three female welterweight belts. And Connor Ben made his, this word again, controversial ring return after being popped for PEDs. And he decisioned Rodolfo Orozco. But there was nothing controversial about the main event. Uh, Showbox alum Richardson Hitchens improved to 17-0 with seven KOs. Basically a shutout win over veteran Jose Sean Zepeda. 120-108 on two cards. Well, one judge made it 119-109, uh, as you would expect. The fight was light on drama. But Eric, how impressed were you with Hitchens in this step-up fight? I was impressed, but I was also bored. Uh, but I'll blame Zapata for that more than Hitchens. Hitchens was just doing his job efficiently, unspectacularly. But, you know, why go nuts when just using your jab and your speed and your defense is working? Zapata, this was just tremendously disappointing how little giddy-up he showed And that's partially due to Hitchens' style and skills, but also it now seems clear to me that Zapata doesn't have a lot left in the tank at 34. He's been in some wars, uh, most notably the insane 2020 fight of the year against Ivan Baranchik. And now that he's been truly dominated by both Regis Progre and now Richardson Hitchens and just never showed any spark of energy in this fight, I have to believe the wars have caught up to him. All that said, Hitchens showed you exactly what you'd want to see in this fight against a veteran like Zepeda. He has a great jab, excellent footwork. I have no idea if he can rumble or or what'll happen when he gets tagged with a shot, but he's now made the leap from prospect to contender and looks like a guy who will probably capture some belts in his career. And, you know, with the skill and efficiency and the monotony, I couldn't help but be reminded a bit of Floyd Mayweather, his former promoter. And there was a subplot where someone from Hitchens's corner was on the phone the whole fight. And the broadcasters were suspecting they were on the phone with Floyd getting his advice to pass along to Hitchens. I have no idea if that was the case, but it seemed a reasonable theory. Um, but anyway, excellent win for Hitchens. Um, 
I don't want to totally crown him the next big thing yet, though. His dominance seemed to have a lot to do with catching Zepeda at the right time. He was probably listening to the Showtime Boxing Podcast. That's probably what he was doing, just listening on his phone while watching his fighter in action. Yeah, that makes the most sense, actually. Yes. Yeah. I I mean, I can't. Yeah. There's no other answer that no further investigation required. (laughs) Right. Okay. (laughs) Um, Looking ahead, uh, besides the massive pay-per-view, there are two other fights of interest this coming weekend from London with DAZN televising. The lineal cruiserweight champ Jai Opataya makes his first defense against Jordan Thompson. And from Antalya, Turkey, heavyweight contenders in action, Otto Valin against Murat Gassiev. I gave a quick comment on each of these in the news segment of the podcast when they were announced. Uh, so your turn now, Kieran. Any interest in Opataya Thompson or Valin Gassiev? I'm somewhat interested in Opataya Thompson, but I might not be that interested if being interested in fights wasn't my job. Um, <laughs> I'll be entirely honest, Jai Opataya snuck up on me. I had not heard of him. I didn't expect him to be competitive with Maris Bradis. I certainly didn't expect him to beat Maris Bradis, but he did, and full credits to him. And, you know, uh, I obviously slept on the man. Um, but, you know, I now find myself in the same position with Jordan Thompson. Hadn't particularly heard of him. His record seems quite underwhelming. Um, I wouldn't necessarily expect him to beat Jai Apataya, but we shall see. That's what I said about Apataya before Bradis. Um, I, I won't carve time out to watch it, but I'll certainly want to, uh, if I catch it, I'll watch it. And I'll, I'll certainly be intrigued by the result. I am somewhat interested in the heavyweight fight, even though there's less at stake because it isn't a, 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 a title fight. But it's a pretty good matchup on paper. Um, look, Gassiev's only losses to Alexander Usyk. Valin's only losses to Tyson Fury. This is a genuinely good heavyweight contender fight. Um, I have a hard time picking who is likely to win this, although I think I'm going to lean slightly to Valin. But I like this. You know, we've had a lot of conversation over the last couple of years about the big guys at the top of the division, and they've been either fighting or not fighting each other over the last couple of years. Um, but we still want to see a, a new-ish crop and see of contenders to emerge as well, like legitimate contenders. And I think this is a, a really good, if not officially an elimination, but a really good elimination bout to see who sort of presents themselves as, as a, a next credible uh, contender. So I, I quite like that. I like that heavyweight fight. Yeah, me too. Uh, all right. We wrap things up with your next top five assignment, uh, but we aren't doing a standard Monday podcast next week. So Kieran, you get two weeks to stew on this. Um, I will expect your responses on the pod dropping Monday, October 9th. Here you Hold go. Uh, straightforward topic here. It concerns active fighters right now. Um, you know how various publications will do their 30 under 30 lists or 40 under 40. I want your top five. Top five is under the age of five. <laughs> exactly. Identify the toddlers who are the best. In, uh, okay. Uh, that's a little tricky. That would be tough to know who's out there. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to pad it with 20 additional years. Top five <laughs> under 25. Um, in okay. essence, who makes up the next generation of potential greats? And you, you will want to wait to work on your list until after the pay-per-view since Jesus Ramos, Elijah Garcia, Armando Resendez, they're all under 25. Um, but I'll note that, that even some of the best young fighters in the game no longer qualify. Boots Ennis, Shakur Stevenson, they've aged out of this. So it's it's only fighters 24 or under as of 
the posting of the pod on October 9th. That's who qualifies. I want you to rank your top five under 25 as you end up with a list that gives us insight into who may be on the pound for pound list two or three or four or five years from now. Cool. I like that one. That's uh, that's fun. Yeah, I do like that one. Uh, and I suspect it's going to be a good list because I just feel we've got a lot of good talent coming through. So, uh, yeah, that'll be that'll be fun. And uh, I will absolutely make sure that even though I have two weeks to get it done, I will have it done in just a matter of days and we'll sit on it. I will not wait <laughs> until the last minute to put it together at all. Well, you like I said, you really need <laughs> to wait for, for, for the 30th. But then, uh, yeah, I... I, I sense your sarcasm. I know your style. You will put it together uh, 12 minutes before we begin podcasting. It's, it's being a deadline journalist, Eric. You know how it is. Got to <laughs> have that adrenaline rush. You thrive under pressure. That's right. Certain types of pressure. Right. Um, that will do it for this episode of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Thanks again to the classy Brian Custer. And we will be back in just a few days on Friday evening with our post weigh-in money punch pod featuring our official picks for the pay-per-view. Until then, thanks as always for listening. Be safe.